City of the Weird. Exploring topics from the esoteric and unexplored to dimensions unknown. Shining a light of truth on the darkest corners of our reality. Welcome to the Curious Realm. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of The Curious Realm. We are live here, coming to you from Austin, Texas, the city of the weird. We have a great lineup tonight. Uh, In the second part, we have good friend of the show, um, Stephen Myers of the Pharaoh's Pump Foundation on to discuss the Great Pyramids of Giza, their construction, uh, his amazing hypothesis for the construction using water locks, all kinds of things. He has some amazing videos, folks. Make sure to stop on by. Follow him at pharaohspumpfoundation.org. Give what you can. His work is absolutely awesome. Um, Hands down, some of the coolest stuff I've seen in years and years when it comes to uh, how the pyramids were constructed. You know, I mean, um, I'm not saying that there wasn't inspiration from somewhere else, uh, all kinds of things, um, even amazing alignments with it. Uh, but humanity is an ingenious, ingenious species. And that is some of what we will be getting into tonight with our first guest, uh, Jason Quit. He is the author of Postures of Power, uh, as well as Astral Genesis, his new book. This is the book that uh, I met him over at Stairway to the Stars in Vegas recently. And his revelations regarding sacred geometry, angles, uh, alignments with things both on Earth as well as in the sky, uh, from ancient civilizations to now, from secret societies to secret priesthoods across the globe, is absolutely awesome. His work is amazing. His website, folks, just so you know, is uh, thecrystalsun.com. His book is Astral Genesis. Welcome to the show. Jason Quit. how are you, my friend? I'm doing good. Glad to be here. Absolutely, man. I am so, so happy to have you here. I've been excited for this episode uh, since you said you would come on shortly after uh, our meeting in Vegas. And uh, I have had some time to go through and read the books. Your work is is voluminous and amazing, man. Uh, the ties that you have made throughout ancient civilizations with their use of sacred geometry, sacred alignments, uh, and initiation rites, everything else is just mind boggling. Um, it's so incredible. How did you, how did you first come to the world of esoteric research and, uh, things like that, Jason? Well, um, I had some uh, humble beginnings, which started out with a um, my own personal awakening experiences. And uh, we discussed this a little um, in Vegas. Mm-hmm. Um, 
uh, basically, I started to have out-of-body experiences. Um, my whole world, my whole perception of the world just kind of uh, changed overnight. And I started to become a seeker. And I had to figure out uh, this new world that opened up to me. Um, I started to have contact experiences. I started to uh, be guided um, into different things. And what really um, has been in the background of my mind since this has happened, and this has been over 20 years, um, has been um, theology and mysticism, ancient civilizations, because a lot of uh, the things that I've experienced, um, they had some type of connection to past lives. They had some type of connection to these ancient mystery teachings. So when I started to go into um, this topic to try to basically explore for myself to try to figure out what was going on with me, um, it wasn't, you know, I, it took a long time for me to be public to even share um, my story and to kind of share uh, the information I was gathering. But um, I would say that I've been uh, very well guided um, and when I find something that I can't find in any other book, then I have to write the book myself. And once again, your your realm of research into this is absolutely amazing. It is it is a jaw dropping amount of information that you have put into astral genesis. I mean, uh, Egyptian postures of power to begin with and the ideas of yogic practices, um, things like that, reaching back into ancient Egypt uh is one thing but astral genesis going into all of the sacred alignments and how those actively influence the first work because it, it was a revelation while you were writing and researching the first book that led you down the adjunct path of the astral genesis alignments and everything else correct yeah see um with the egyptian postures book i was um I was very interested in Egyptian mysticism and the second book that I was writing, which I was still not done. <laughs> I keep writing other books, <laughs> but <laughs> I need to finish that one. But uh, the second level for the Egyptian postures, um, I was writing it and I got about halfway through. Um, and what I was doing for my research was I was really getting into um, – the uh, book of the dead. I was getting into the pyramid text and I was just trying to absorb um, everything firsthand. I didn't want um, other people's interpretations. I wanted to go right to the source material and work through it myself. And because I've been working uh, with uh, mystical texts and different theologies from around the world for almost 20 years, um, I started to uh, read these texts with a very specific um, perspective of what um, I should be looking for. But I was actually quite surprised because as I was going through um, the pyramid texts, for example, um, I started to see a very obvious correlation to the gods and the stars. And the journey into the underworld, the journey of the afterlife and to be reborn again. And just just that story alone, that motif is is absolutely fascinating. But the language, I mean, if you go read the pyramid texts, one sentence 
could could hold so many different motifs of theology. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's yeah. a heavy reading. And if you don't understand the words or you don't understand what they're referring to, you have to have this built up background of understanding just to get through that text. It's very heavy. So as I was going through it, I started to realize that the journey um, through the underworld, the journey to be reborn, actually followed a very specific pattern of a solar motif. And it had to do with the dying of the sun, going into the underworld, which is the night, and passing through different star systems. And the different star systems mm. and different stars are the gods. So it makes it very clear in the pyramid text that, you know, when they speak of uh, specific stars or specific, specific constellations, they're actually referring to gods. And they refer to them both as gods and stars. So when I took the piece and I started to follow the direction of the path of dying or the path through the underworld, uh, what happened was, is that I discovered that it was an allegory for the death of the sun and the resurrection of the sun. And it's part of this grand solar motif that we see in many other ancient cultures. So once I realized this, uh, it made for a really good chapter. We call, I called this chapter the brazen serpent. And I went through um, a lot of um, mystical understandings, theological understandings, and relating it to um, astrology and um, basically the seasons of the earth. But what happened with astral genesis is that as I was going through this process, um, I was doing a lot of work uh, looking at the pictures of the tombs because the, the Valley of the Kings, the Valley of the Queens, um, those tombs are almost ground to ceiling covered in the most amazing artwork. Yeah. Retelling the story of the Book of the Dead, the Pyramid Text, all of that. And there was a couple tombs that were very interesting to me. And I found some uh, symbols, uh, some some beautiful motifs on these walls. And uh, because you can't just take a picture and put it in a book, <laughs> you know, you can't do that. Yeah. Um, I'm an artist. I'm an artist. Um, I, I got into or I went to school as a graphic designer. So what I do is um, I take uh, examples of the artwork and then I take it into Illustrator and I do like a, a trace um, so I can get it as a, a line art vector yeah. file because uh, that's what you need when you're doing books and graphics and things. So as I was doing this, um, I started to do a couple of these symbols. I realized that um, even though the symbols were different, they all followed a very specific pattern. And there's a there's an old axiom that has been in the back of my mind for many years. And um, I believe it does come from Egypt. And the axiom is, if you want to know the secret of something, measure it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So that's what I did. I threw it on a grid and I started to measure the image. And I was finding that the image was actually based on a grid that um, had very specific angles to it. So um, this kept coming up and coming up in all the different symbols I was um, reworking on the computer. 
and this there was two there's two um angles that kept coming up and the angles were see that's a perfect example you just pulled up here too because I now I have an eye, I can look at these pictures and mm-hmm. I can actually see where the hidden angles are. <laughs> but uh, before that, I did had no clue. But basically, there is a very specific angle of twenty three point five degrees in the layout, and there's a very specific angle of fifteen degrees in the layout. And so, when you know what you're looking for and how to grid the picture, you start to realize that. These aren't regular artists that are drawing this work. This is done by, call it a uh, a scientist priest, someone who knows what they're doing, and basically they're they're telling us, uh, they're creating a picture or a motif that has an underlying language to it, and it's a language of geometry. And once you can decipher and read the language of geometry in these images it starts to tell a very interesting story. And so, you know, what is 23.5 degrees? Well, that's the um, axial tilt of the Earth. Uh, the Earth is not straight. It's not vertical. Um, it's tilted at the um, at the equator um, at 23.5 degrees. And what that does is it gives us our seasons. So we have the winter solstice, equinoxes, uh, summer solstice. And this was um, something that they said, or mainstream um, history teaches us, that this was discovered um, about 2,000 years ago. And it was first documented by uh, Plotny, I believe, in Greece. But it was discovered like a hundred years before him, <laughs> so about two thousand years of yeah. information. Um, what what I was seeing in the evidence was things going back about forty five hundred years or more. Just wow. Specifically, just in Egypt, it was going back forty five hundred years. So I knew that if they were encoding the tilt of the Earth in their solar geometry because it was a solar motif geometry then the egyptians knew um, a lot more about the geography of our planet the seasons the tilt the stars than we know like even this picture that you're showing of uh this is from the book of the dead of weighing of the heart yep um you have this strange motif and it's a symbol. It's a symbol. This is not um, something that they were trying to depict as the afterlife. This is actually um, a star map. And it shows you the path of where the soul or the sun goes through the stars. And the um, scales that we're seeing um, had a dual role. One played the role of uh, Libra, the only scales of the zodiac, because this is when um, this is right before the sun dies from Scorpio, and it enters into the underworld. And then, if we want to get even more into detail of this, this also gets into the Northern Cross, which is also the scales. So yeah. we're going back to very ancient asterisms 
And the heart and the feather is also um, Job's coffin and Delphinus, mm. you know, or, or sorry, Delphinus and Lyra. So, you know, if we take these images and we put them right onto a star map, they are almost identical matches. And then when you go to the Egyptian Book of the Dead, it talks about that journey with the stars in association with the journey. So this is a very like, um, I would say a unique perspective. Absolutely. Uh, of this information. But what's beautiful about this information is that um, because they encoded the geometry into it, because it was so specific the way they laid it out, that the geometry itself confirms the story. Yeah. And the other thing, um, the other angle that was very specific in these images was 15 degrees. And these are all, and 15 degrees is, is um, a very important degree or angle in the sky. And this is the way that the ancients would divide the heavens which would be 15 and 30 degrees. Um, constellation is 30 degrees. Yep. One hour of time. So the sun passes through the sky at 15 degrees per hour. So these are, these are very specific um, solar angles and they were placed in certain tools and certain images to describe um, not only the passing of seasons and what seasons they're in, but also um, even the hours and how to find those degrees. So very, very specific information, but it's not something that you can find unless you're taught the language. Well, and, it, you know, once you once you start getting into mystery schools, Things like that. Um, uh, once again, looking looking into things like the Knights Templar, uh, they they were huge users of the same degrees that you're talking about, uh, and they they much like the Egyptian high priest, they they had no need to write it in a crazy secret code. I mean, I guess they did write it in a crazy secret code. They wrote it in hieroglyphs. Um, <laughs> which was not the it wasn't Coptic, you know, it wasn't like the the language of the common people. Um, mm -hmm. Everybody walking the streets of Egypt did not know how to read hieroglyphs. You know, that was that was a very sacred thing and something held for uh, folks of high regard in society, things like that. Um, even the fact of the images from the Book of the Dead being on a on a tomb wall. Uh, these were important things. If you were to enter the afterlife, uh, if you didn't, if you didn't have this spell for your spirit to see upon waking, um, you were in some sincere trouble, uh, as far as Egyptian religion went. Oh, absolutely. And, um, it was so important. In fact, that, uh, the sarcophaguses were painted on the inside. Yeah. And it wasn't just one sarcophagus. It was sarcophagi. <laughs> that's, that's right. And, and painted with star maps yes. on the inside, uh, that, that match up with these same stories that you're talking about. The transition of the sun, uh, pass, because that, 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 that is what was held sacred above, above all else at that point in Egyptian hierarchy was 
the passing of the son, the story of the son dying, coming back to life and its circuit through the constellations of the night. Uh, because yes, they understood that there were constellations that, you know, existed elsewhere. Um, everything else. It was, it was pretty remarkable. Uh, now and go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, and the way that worked was, um, through observation. Yeah. So they, they mapped the course of the sun over the solar cycle of the year. And they noticed that when the sun is, let's say, um, in the winter months, you have Orion as like the main, um, uh, constellation in the sky. Yep. And so when they, when it's the winter months or the wet months, and the sun is in a very specific position and the stars are rising from a very specific position, they would create stories about, um, let's say, Osiris, which was uh, the god of Orion. They would create stories of Orion and what he's doing on Earth during that time when that sun is in the position of Orion. So as the sun makes its transit through the 12 constellations or, or through the 12 gods, um, the stories, the attributes, and what's happening on Earth changes in accordance with what you see in heaven. Yeah. So it was this very ancient philosophy of um, the influences of as above, so below in the sky. And um, the life changed. So you had to change your life during certain seasons. Yep. You had to plant, you had to harvest. Um, you had to store food. Um, there are certain plants that would come at different times of uh, the year. Yeah. So they had to create stories and know when you see those stars in the sky, this is well, the time you do this. Well, and it's because the, the story is much easier for the common person doing the planting to understand and remember than the actual science of, hey, man. When this thing rises 15 degrees above the horizon, we need to put seed in the ground. Um, they, they, the common per, even right now, the common person does not know ascension declension when it comes to setting up a telescope. If you give them a telescope and just give them, here's your right ascension and your declension, um, have fun, regular person. Um, not everybody knows how to use a telescope in that way. Not everybody knows how to set a north azimuth on something and and equatorially align a telescope so that it tracks things in the sky. Um, but every, this, everybody can understand that moss grows on a certain side of a tree. Yes. And also, um, they didn't have the technology we had. Yeah. But they did have technology. Oh, absolutely. Huge technology. And even if it's a stick in the ground to see the shadow, it's, you know, most the, people can't read a shadow with a stick today. And what's amazing, Jason, to me, and, and this is where I say, like, was there possible inspiration from elsewhere? Absolutely. I, I have no issue with that. I have no issue with um, with shafts in the Great Pyramid pointing towards star systems. Okay. Um, what I have an issue with with the Great Pyramid is I'll be darned if you'll ever get me to call that thing a tomb. Because whoever they will put in that king's chamber, they intended him to go nowhere. There are zero markings in that thing. There's, there's no, 
inscriptions from the Book of the Dead. There's no spells to tell set to weigh your heart. Nothing like that whatsoever. So um, it's obvious it had a different use, most definitely, which may have been a high technological use. Who knows? But the 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 wild thing is they had the knowledge to be able to build it. They had the ingenuity to be able to build it. Yes. And my my question um, is not how, uh, you know, you start out as, yeah. how, you know, how do they move the blocks, right? It's very difficult. But for me, the question is, um, there's obviously um, a very deep knowledge of cycles of time, yes. measurement, scale, um, location. <laughs> there's all these things wrapped. Yeah, geolocation. In- Yes, even the the very specific angle of fifty one point eight degrees of the slope. Um, there's all these things about this pyramid, and my question is, who is the architect? How did they figure this out? How did they build it? How did they come to an agreement of just how to set this up? How did they lay the plan out on Giza plateau? And there is a secret of the um, pyramids. That it's an it's an open secret, but people don't really grasp on it as the secret. But for me, it's it's absolutely substantial. Um, this discovery is that uh, the pyramids on the Giza plateau, uh, the three pyramids plus the Sphinx, yep. is a um, it, it's a solar calendar. Sure. And if you stand in a very specific position, looking at the Sphinx. Um, during the winter solstice, the sun will set behind uh, Menkari, the small pyramid to the left. Uh, during the uh, both equinoxes, the sun will set right on the back of the Sphinx. So the sun will stand on the back of the Sphinx. And during the summer solstice, the sun will set right between um, the Great Pyramid, Khufu, and um, the Middle Pyramid. And it will set right between these two Mounds or the two mountains, which is the Akhet symbol, which is the two mounds of creation that the sun sets to go into the underworld. So it it tells a very ancient story and it has a purpose and a function yeah. right there. Yes. It's so much more, but just that alone is worth scratching your head over. Well, absolutely, man. And uh, more more than anything is is the connection that that we had to the earth until all of very recently in humanity um i i know my grandfather grew up as a sharecropper things like that he needed no farmer's almanac to know when to when to put seed in the ground or when the catfish were going to be biting you know or when to go out and trap what animals he he needed none of that uh, that was passed down to him and uh, once again, known by the stars in the sky, known known by the constellations rising as to when when hunting time would be best. Stuff yes. like that. And, um, and this is why the first calendars um, were actually like lunar calendars. Um, lunar and Venusian. They, say that again. And lunar and Venusian. Yes. Uh, using using Venus. Yes. As well, um, yes. because those are things that occur in regular cycles that you can track. 
and Venus it, is a very long cycle. You know, when you look at the Mayan calendar, I think it's like 10,000 years, something like that. Um, I, I forget what exactly what the number of years per cycle is, but that's basically the the one transit of Venus around the solar system. Um, is, yes, is what that is. So. And and they actually, um, after a long time, this article just came out um, this year, I believe, mm. uh, 2023, where they just finally figured out the different long count calendars um, from the Aztecs. Because there wasn't just one calendar, they had multiple calendars and some were very odd, uh, very odd counts. And they just figured it out that um, each individual count had to do with a different planet. So they were actually tracking not only the planets, but the stars, uh, the sun, the moon, obviously. But these are very complicated systems that take a very long time of observation to fully grasp the influence on the planet. And this is also why, yeah, there it is right there. Yeah. And uh, this is also why with with uh, the ancient religions, remember, we came out of the... Um, the last ice age and into the Neolithic period, we came into um, farming communities. That was where yeah. we started from yeah. is just uh, agrarian societies, farming and herding animals. And they knew that the tides of the rivers that fed the channels to get to their food, um, there was more water during a full moon cycle, less during a new moon cycle. Yeah. Uh, they knew that they had to harvest at the full moon. They knew to plant the seeds in the new moon. You know, they so they had to follow very specifically timing of not only the stars in the sky, but, you know, when the sun hits very specific points on the horizon. So this is why you'll see um, these stone markers. Absolutely. And it's like when that sun hits that stone marker, it's you know, a couple days of the year, it hits that stone marker. It says, okay, now it's time to put those seeds in the ground. Yeah. So for a lot of people seeing these kind of, um, you know, little stone hinges around all over the world, um, this was a way of survival to, to set up the environment so that you can know exactly the position of the stars and the sun, um, the path of the moon, and they would actually create these very complicated um, cycles. Yep. They're not perfect. They're not perfect. No, and no, but they're they're pretty well dependable. Um, and it's it's interesting once you start getting into those cycles. Uh, even right now, we're we're up against a cycle of possible polar flip coming up. <laughs> like, and and people do not realize that Jason, the fact that like the if they. Yeah, it's kind of the idea of if you spin a quarter, you know how it eventually spins yes. flat. Imagine there's no table. It would rotate. And that's basically what happens to the Earth's core is eventually it wobbles so much it flips over and north becomes south and south becomes north. And we are far overdue for that. Geomagnetic. It's happened. It's happened many New, times. Yes. And it is recorded in magma cores, all kinds of things. Whenever magma settles and the iron filings in it, uh, the iron pieces are directed toward magnetic north. And we well, we see that flip I on hope, a pretty regular schedule. 
I hope it it does not flip in our lifetime. That's all I got to say. I hope so, too. Um, but it is the case that like magnetic north is drifting almost a mile a day. Um, yes. It's wild. That wobble that happens is getting wider. And, and that is a known cycle. Um, it's it's things that, yes, over long, long periods of uh, of watching and observation um people pass this information down and we may not consider it as important as they used to back in the day because we don't we don't live and die by it jason uh ancient civilizations even our even our great grandparents like lived and died by this information you know they uh, left it in stone yeah and it survived at least since Gobekli Tepe, so 11,000 years. The issue is, if this happened to us today, our homes, our buildings, our technology, our books, the things that we record data on of who yep. we are, um, that stuff is not going to last. So yeah, um, let's say the survivors 2,000 years from now when they discover – um, archaeo- the archaeology of our, of the massive garbage we dump on this planet. Yeah, yeah. Just the 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 beautiful arrangement of landfills and yes. and where they're located. <laughs> yes, they'll find they'll find lots of um you, wind turb- wind turbine the, blades. The That's what they'll and, find. The odd and horrifying thing, though, Jason, is that that is that is an archaeo archaeologist dream. When they come across the spoils of a civilization and like the trash dump outside the wall, that's when they start finding out real stuff. You know, that's that's when they start finding out things that like they considered trash, you know, that that, hey, maybe you found inside of a house before or something. But now you realize it doesn't quite have the significance that maybe you thought it did. Um <laughs> And uh, but the, but the concept of technology and the technological loss of humanity is is a constant conversation on this show. Like I've I've got a right now a one terabyte thumb drive in my hand. Number one, I remember having a tardy an Atari twenty six hundred. The fact that I'm holding a terabyte in my hand right now still boggles my mind. Um, if I threw this over my shoulder in my backyard. And a hundred years from now, 50 years from now, somebody found it with a metal detector. Do you think that we would still be using USB drives? No. And do you think the memory would still be on there? I don't think so. It, well, it, it might be. Probably not due to the elements and everything else. It's not like a military grade thumb drive. But <laughs> but at the same token, it's the fact of do would they have the technology to read it right now? If you show somebody an eight track tape, most people would be like, what the heck's that thing? Um, I love my eight track, but not a lot of people know what they are. You Look, know, if if you and like a hundred people uh, get stranded on an island today. And you don't have any technology, and someone says to you, "We got to make a cell phone to get yeah, out of here." Got to make a coconut radio, <laughs> like the like the professor. You know, right. <laughs> we have to we have to go um, to the roots of the yeah. the most ancient technology to survive. And if you're surviving off the most ancient technology in a couple generations, 
um, those children will not know anything of the technology. It would just be like myths and magic of just stories that you tell of crazy technology of the past. Yeah. Yeah. It's like I'm talking to you right now. It's got to be a couple thousand miles from each other, but it's in real time talking to you. Yeah. You know, tell that to, you know, try to explain that to a tribe that, you know, just gets introduced to modern society. There are there are still tribes that are not introduced to modern society, and we fight tooth and nail to keep them that way. Jason, there was there was the one not too long ago where there was there was the video of them throwing spears and and shooting arrows at like drones that were flying over the rainforest, you know, just doing general mapping and stuff like that. But um, imagine imagine their reaction to that. Like for us, oh, you know, drone going over doing doing a little bit of measurement. Okay, Um, but imagine that to them, somebody who has been without outside contact or technological contact for their entire existence so that you're is, saying so you're saying ufos are just people that live in mountains that are more advanced than us you know um number one happy birthday thiago tiachi he he or Tichetti. he he is the sole mufon investigator for brazil one one of the one of the countries with the most sightings in the world and there is an official MUFON investigator. Now, when I interviewed him, one of the questions I asked was, what about reports out out away from the cities, you know, like with the native tribes, things like that? He's like, well, number one, we don't get a lot of reports from them, like coming in because it's like a day and a half journey one way on a boat to come in. But. Whenever I get reports from forestry workers, things like that, people working for the government that are out doing work and they give me a report and I go out there, I hear stories all the time. And for them, they they wouldn't report it because it's nothing strange to them. They still they still live their life by looking at the night sky every night. They still live their life in that exact way where it's like it is it is live and die by sunset and and moon glow, you know, and so they they are regular observers of the night sky. Um, so they see things regularly to them. It's nothing strange. They would never come report it because it's not unidentified or weird for them. Um, this, it's in this the is, realm of the norm. And and this is what I found out um from my whole origin story is that um, when I was having these out-of-body experiences, I was having contact experiences with beings that people would describe um, as aliens. And for me, um, I had the more shamanic point of view where these were um, dimensional beings or spiritual beings that, you know, just live outside of our um, physical reality. And that's how I always viewed them from the start. And then when I got into uh, the shamanic community and the native community and we would have open discussions of these things, um, that's the way that they saw them. And it was nothing out of the ordinary. It's what all their ancestors have talked about since the beginning of time that these beings exist um, and when they they say inside the earth or um, in another dimension, but it's really just – um, a space that we cannot connect to in the physical reality. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, uh, you know, especially when you're talking uh, indigenous tribes, their use of indigens, um, herbs, sacred plants, things like that. I am a, I am a big believer, Jason. And I know we had this conversation in Vegas uh, privately of of uh, these things are slightly adjunct to us vibrationally. We see we see in here a very, very tiny slice like less than 500 nanometers width of the entire electromagnetic spectrum. Very, very tiny slice that is visible light and audible sound. Uh, the rest of the world and universe is outside of that. Um, I, 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 I'll, I'll give a prime example right here. Uh, this is, this is a couple of pictures that I show regularly. Um, whenever I'm interviewed on shows about vibrations, frequencies, things like that. These are a couple of pictures that I took at, uh, at Pryor's, uh, Pryor's Ledge in, in Salem, Massachusetts. I'm a huge fan of that town. Love Salem, Massachusetts. Uh, Proctor's Ledge, uh, not Pryor's Ledge. Sorry, folks. Proctor's Ledge is where the actual hangings of the witches took place. So if you look on that wall, there's a little plaque there for each individual person that was prosecuted and persecuted during the Salem witch trials. Now, with me this day, um, I actively had my full spectrum modified camera. This is the exact same model camera that took the previous picture. Exact same. The only difference is the filters have been stripped off of it for astrophotography and full spectrum use. So... It's seeing in the near infrared, the near ultraviolet. This is very much the way that a parrot or a tetrachromic person uh, would see this this reality as opposed to how we average see it. So there there is an entire world of color that's right there and an entire world of detail that is slightly different, that is just adjunct and outside of, and uh, what's funny is that uh, when it comes to astrophotography, you start getting all kinds of crazy details when you strip those filters of reality off the camera, you know, and start seeing them for the actual things that are there and the glowing red hydrogen, everything else. It's, it's pretty remarkable the detail and additional detail that you get out of images. Um, but, and I, you know, um, I bought the first digital cameras, you know, that was my generation. Um, yeah. And the first digital cameras, um, I have pictures on my computer that I can share with you later, um, full out apparitions that you could fully see, yeah. make out the details yeah. and weird things. Yeah. Uh, I think they fixed that problem. It was, yeah, it was filtering there there wasn't the same kind of filtering glass in front of sensors and things like that um and and sensors made assumptions for things as well uh that that now we're using all kinds of ai and real time algorithm to to pick up as close to as possible uh what is there so um but it's it's interesting how uh these ancient societies knew about these vibrations. They knew about these things that were lower, like theta waves, things like that. When you start looking at, you know, uh, pyra or 
temple complexes elsewhere in the world for initiation rites. Uh, Malta comes to mind immediately, um, where where the chambers there resonate in in the theta realm, which is connected to like the third eye and you know lucid dreaming things like that. Um, these are these are typical brainwave patterns that um, I'm I'm almost convinced that the king's chamber itself in the Great Pyramid is a binaural beat chamber used to activate the pyramid. It's two shafts that are slightly offset in length, you know, that has baffles. There's always a breeze going by. So, yeah, you could absolutely use that to tune the frequency of the chamber and make the whole place vibrate um, piezoelectrically. I think that is one of the the secrets of ancient sites is a way to um, modify the air like a wind instrument. So, mm-hmm. so you're creating chambers and, you know, when you go to the grand gallery and there's certain uh, chambers um, that just reverberate so incredibly that one voice can be a thousand. Yes. Yes. And um, there is a power um, to that. But when when there there are people that have measured uh, the standing wave frequencies um, in these different chambers. And what they found is that they're very low frequency, very much like a um, the earth tones. So like yeah. you're saying like the, the very low magnetic oscillations of, de- of delta waves. Yeah. Very low. Eight, eight hertz, things eight, like eight, that. Eight hertz Two, and three below. Hertz. Yeah. But between, I would say like 1.4 hertz um to about the theta wave is around four close to uh, close to four so yeah it was just below that eight ten hertz range um that you really get to these extremely low frequencies and and those are the frequencies that our brain enters naturally when we're in the, the very low states of sleep yep and this is the whole thing with uh meditation is that uh, it's almost the state in between waking and dreaming. So you want to get your beta waves down to alpha waves. And then when you're meditating, you want to get those alpha waves down to theta. And that is when um, you have these incredible experiences, um, very similar or not similar at all to taking um, these shamanic medicines. Yep. So you don't need anything. You just need to learn how to meditate and drop those brain frequencies to go into resonance with, um, I believe it's just another um, dimensional field that the earth has naturally. And that's where all these crazy things exist. Absolutely. Absolutely. A hundred percent. And, you know, um, that that is a lot of my explanation for not just paranormal events, Jason, but. Um, the, the paranormal events that tend to happen around experiencers, um, it, it's almost, almost the idea of they, they're like a, like a watch or a needle that's been around a, a magnet and now carries that weak magnetic field always, you know, um, it's, it's really interesting once you start digging into, um, UFO, UAP experiencers and the other paranormal experiences that they've had. Uh, and I am a, I am a big believer that these things, whether, whether it's a, a spiritual awakening that you've had that changes your frequency and the way that you interact with the world around you, 
um, whether it's a paranormal event, anything like that, that that is that is the key. That is the key to transitioning uh, to that ancient knowledge that that's there. Call it Akashic record, what have you, you know. And it could be as simple as, you know, your bedroom is actually on top of um, an underground water current. Yep. And it just changes the magnetic fields of the room. And suddenly you're having these intense experiences. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Poltergeist, contacts, awakening experiences. And then you go somewhere else and then nothing happens. Yeah. And you realize that it could be an environmental issue. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Much, much like, you know. They they came to find out that the Oracle of Delphi, some really some really intense natural gas in the area, um, hang around in a cave with that going on. You you may be talking to some gods and having some visions here and there, you know. Um, so, yeah, uh, exploring those and and the natural phenomena that are occurring that bring about paranormal phenomena or connection with the other is uh, is fascinating in and of itself jason um we have about four minutes left in our conversation here uh let everybody know where they can go to not only keep up with your work but you you have some amazing stuff i i actively have your pendulum right here on my desk i keep it with me all the time um i i keep it inside of a bell jar actively on on the side of my desk uh, yeah. <laughs> and have seen it move a couple times during conversation. Oh. Uh, that's kind of the idea behind having it on the bell jar on the shelf off to the side is I ain't touching it. It ain't being hit by a breeze. That's really interesting. <laughs> so, Very cool. Uh, yeah, I love having it right here. Let everybody know where they can go to keep up with your work, where they can go to get their copies of... Egyptian postures of power, as well as astral genesis. This book right here, folks, astral genesis will, will honestly introduce you to so much. Like you could, you could branch off into the world of masonry from this. You could branch off into the world of Mayan studies. You get it, this will take you about eight, nine different paths down the road of esoteric studies, folks. Astral genesis is amazing. Where can people go? To Thank keep you. up with your work, where can they go to purchase your books, crystals, uh, all that kind of good stuff, my friend? My personal website is uh, thecrystalsun.com, which is right on the feed here. And this is where you can get uh, the books and crystals and different things um, from my site. And um, if you want, uh, it's also available on Amazon. So if you just type my name, Jason Quid, on Amazon, you will get um, my books as well. And I'm not that active on social media. Um, but when I am active, it's usually on Twitter. And it's uh, Jason underscore Quit. Awesome. Jason, thank you so much for the time, man. I greatly appreciate it. I would love to have you on again and again. We could talk for hours man um, thank you you're when well i get of, the new book out we'll, I, i'll come back i can't wait i cannot wait i can't wait um i love your research it's absolutely awesome it invigorates me every time i read it so thank you thank you for all of your hard work um i'll be sharing links all that kind of good stuff thank you so much for the great conversation tonight take care of yourself and uh we'll be in touch very soon my friend 
Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Man, uh, Jason Quit, everybody. What an amazing conversation. And once again, just... Yeah, we'll be getting more uh, into a stay tuned, Jason, into the second part of the episode, because our guest coming up, Stephen Myers from the Pharaoh's Pump Foundation, uh, has some groundbreaking work that that will be showing articles on air, things like that, about a lake in the area, about um, there there being a huge flooding event there in the great the Great Pyramid area um he talks about a retention wall he talks about using the actual nile and damming the nile off and using water locks to float the bricks of the pyramids into place brilliant brilliant work from steven myers uh coming up in our next segment everybody stay tuned through this quick break we will be right back after this Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back from commercial break. Thank you so much for staying tuned, and thank you so much to all of our sponsors, especially our good friend Christopher Lynch over at True Him Science. True Him Science is your source for some of the best CBD that I have found, folks. I have tried CBD all over the country. I was recommended CBD by my doctor probably about six years ago now for my travel anxiety, and... uh I found Christopher Lynch a few months after I have tried things at dispensaries across the country. His is the only CBD that I have found with actual terpene profiles. Amazing stuff. Spigerically made. Uh, 100% of the plant is used. Stop on by and check them out. TrueHimScience.com is the website. Curious7 is the code that you want to use to save 7% off your entire cart of $50 or more and Get two, count them, two free uh, edibles on your way out the door. Our guest in this segment is the author of Lost Technologies of the Great Pyramid. He is the founder of thepump.org. Uh, he is also author of the amazing new book, uh, ebook format right now, uh, Pharaoh's Pump Analyzed, examining the research of Edward J. Kunkel, uh, Stephen has been on the show with us before. Welcome back to the show. Stephen Myers, how are you doing, my friend? Very good. Thank you for having me uh, back on the show. It's quite an honor. It is always a pleasure talking with you. Uh, you know, this show, when curious, when Dudes and Beer started a long time ago, uh, the first mm -hmm. the first incarnation that you were on of this program, um, the whole idea was furthering the conversation of humanity and and demystifying things, demystifying people's understanding of things. And you, I think, are one of the most level-headed researchers out there when it comes to the Great Pyramid, uh, the uses of the Great Pyramid, and specifically Great Pyramid construction. Um I, I have a hypothesis of the use of the Great Pyramid, but specifically the construction and the use of water locks to construct the Great Pyramid, I think, is one of the most visionary and common sense things that I have ever heard, Stephen. So um, how did you first come into the realm of researching this and researching the construction of the Great Pyramid to begin with? 
Well, I have a very technical background, and I enjoy history. So um, I focused on a lot of different things, you know, like uh, anti-gasoline engines, uh, that type of thing, very early cars. I like that. But mm. I also enjoyed uh, ancient history, and the Great Pyramid is a technological wonder built in, in uh, distant uh, history. So I got interested in that. And read a bunch of books, certainly by Egyptologists, you know, back when I got started quite a few years ago. And uh, those were very unsatisfactory because they didn't engage in the scientific method. The Egyptology didn't uh, perform any demonstrations to justify their stories. They've never made a casing stone like those at the Great Pyramid. Yeah. Egyptology has never moved a 70-ton payload one inch. And or lifted it up 200 feet high uh, and set it in place. So yep. I was very dissatisfied with Egyptologists and ultimately read all the alternative books about an alien beacon and uh, Bible prophecy. You know, the Great Pyramid confirms Bible prophecy, all of those correlations. But then I finally found a book by Edward Kunkel, privately published with a small distribution and uh, read it, and it was astounding. It he uh, talked about the real the the Great Pyramid was built in the real world, and that it could be studied using um, valid research methods, and you could actually determine how heavy stones were moved from one place to another. And his contention was the use of water locks and barges mm. uh, was the uh, method of choice in distant antiquity to move all of those stones with ease. And that's why my third book is about his book, um, Pharaoh's Pump, and I've just analyzed that book, and it's out on uh, in ebook format. And uh, so it just came out. So that's, yeah. that's kind of the big news that I've done recently. So uh, <laughs> that's... That's where we're at right now. Well, and as soon as you let me know it was available, I went out and got it and was like, we we need to get you on for our upcoming pre-record sessions, man, and, and get into this conversation. Because here lately, there have been numerous headlines, and typically whenever I post things about pyramids, the Nile, um, moving stones, things like that, normally whenever I post them in the group, like I, I tag you uh, to let you know. And the one that I posted the other day, um, which was actually December 11th, like not even a month ago, was out of Indy 100. Discovery from space shows the pyramids were built using water. Um, like this is literally hot off the presses for years. You know, there have been the Egyptological hypotheses of, you know, we, we need half mile long ramps to, to push things up. Uh, we're gonna, we're gonna, take it off the perfectly good water that we already know how to dam up and control and everything else and just drag them across the dirt on rolling pylons. Uh, you know, things that things that Occam's razor wise really don't make sense, you know. Um, I, yeah, I do know. Yeah, there's all all of the ramp stuff and all of that. But uh, how fascinating it is that uh, none of that is being uh, validated through the scientific method with demonstrations. But water locks 
all over the globe are being used uh, 24 hours a day and actually work. So uh, the Erie Canal, when built in the 1830s, was able to move and lift 70-ton payloads. Yeah. And uh, But now Egyptology can't move a 70-ton payload, but they can tell you how it was done all day long. Well, uh, well, and, you know, it's interesting because the, the, the movement of water, the use of water was uh, huge in numerous ancient cultures. Uh, when you start looking at places like Teotihuacan, stuff like that, where it was where it was almost a man-made uh, Venusian or not Venusian, but Venice uh, situation, um, yes. even even looking at the canals of Venice, things like that and the mastery of that. And now, granted, that was medieval times, stuff like that. But um, once again, the the Egyptians knew the cycles of the Nile. They lived and died by the Nile. Um, the Nile was in a totally different cycle and and distance from town than it is now. Uh, at that point, those were those were very fertile regions. Uh, right there where the pyramids were, everything else. So um, to to think that uh, the desert encroached the way the desert encroaches now, uh, 10,000 years ago, is, is, I think, ecologically a little silly to begin with. Oh, that's true. Uh, the course of the Nile has changes, changed over the millennia, and uh, the... Egyptian Valley of the Nile was much more um, not it wasn't as arid it was more um, a savanna type area more productive that type of thing but uh, there's a profound link certainly between ancient Egypt and water and I, I extend that uh, link to uh, the profound link between water and the Great Pyramid. So uh, we think it was assembled using water locks and barges, and that it served as infrastructure to be a huge uh, machine that was used to pump water. And uh, my uh, books describe that whole water pumping process mm. and construction process in detail. Well, and it's it's pretty remarkable once you start getting into things. Uh, you have an entire series of videos out that that really break a lot of this stuff down. I'm bringing it up on screen right now. Uh, we have right there on CuriousRealm.com forward slash videos, everybody, is where you can find all of our guests' YouTubes. And if you click there, like you have, you have tons of videos about not only the use of water locks to construct the pyramid but the use of the pyramid as an actual water pump uh to help fertilize the nile delta to help to help bring fresh water up to to grow crops things like that we do we have a video series that describes in detail with computer generated animations how the great pyramid was assembled uh, using water locks and barges. And then our other video series is uh, about how the Great Pyramid operated as a machine to pump water. So uh, it's interesting, the largest structure in the Valley of the Nile is the High Aswan Dam. And much of the electricity from that dam is used to pump water in the Valley of the Nile. So uh, Egypt has always needed 
water pumps, uh, both in ancient times and in modern times. So uh, that's, uh, you know, that's what we're about. So it's, uh, it's the Great Pyramid wasn't just built by uh, knuckle draggers to keep some sort of a pharaoh's body um, safe, even though it didn't work that way at all. It had long open passages and doors on pivots, but the Great Pyramid was a wise investment and a machine that provided a huge return on investment. Well, yeah, and especially whenever you're looking at it as as your book is called, the, the prosperity machine, you know, mm-hmm. the, the idea that this is what, that yes, a collective effort of people across a couple of generations to build this massive structure was a massive payoff in how it helped them grow food, how it helped them fertilize the Nile Delta and literally basically geoengineer their location to make their life better. Yes, you understand it well. They also, besides irrigated year-round, they uh, powered heavy machinery. They probably created massive amounts of compressed air for scientific and industrial purposes and did a whole host of different uh, different things. With compressed air, you can make high-voltage static electricity. And uh, I see the Giza Plateau not as a graveyard originally – but I see it more as a industrial park and mm. science center for an advanced uh, civilization. And and that's the thing is that now don't get me wrong. Like uh, when it comes to Orion correlation theory, things like that, like that, that's one of my favorite things with you is that you you constantly post uh, Occam's razor type memes about such things like, you know, correlation is not causation. Just because it looks like something in homage to it doesn't mean that that is the purpose of its building um, or that it was, you know, connected to that in such a deep way. And um, no, and but at the same token, you are not saying that they were not using the pyramid to help power some kind of other technology that they that they weren't using it to make compressed air that they weren't using it to help turn water wheels to possibly mm-hmm. cut stone faster you yeah. know all, all kinds or generate of things. electricity or to generate electricity 100% you know especially when you when you start looking at the construction materials of the great pyramid um pretty much just a a big stack of superconductor and, you know, uh, resistive material called granite. Um, like there, yeah. Uh, I, I even hold the hypothesis that the, the air tubes, uh, the air tunnels coming out of the King's chamber were used as almost like a binaural beat pattern to, basically cause compression in the king's chamber and activate the piezoelectric qualities of the pyramid um, and of the stone itself, you know, uh, by causing compression inside of a small chamber, basically making it into a big piezoelectric beating heart, you know, using the passing of the air, literally going past it, you know, um, Super easy to do, not incredibly hard. And when you start looking at why are there baffles to control the airflow inside of the inside of the shafts, uh, especially if the shafts are there to uh, are they there to like 
hold the spirit back for a certain amount of time before it ascends <laughs> to the heavens? Like, why are there air baffles if if those shafts are used to send the soul to the stars, as as we are told? Um, why why are right. there zero uh, inscriptions for the soul to read, um, as we are told? Every tomb needs, you know, you right. would you yeah. would spend all this time and money to build a tomb for a pharaoh and then just leave him in the nether void, you know. Right. You know, it's interesting. Temples and in the uh, Valley of the Kings, every single surface has got some kind of a hieroglyph or something written on it. Yeah. But, uh, the you know, the exception is the Great Pyramid. There's no writing at all, formal writing inside the passages and chambers and the reason is it's a machine it doesn't need writing in it yeah and it operated as a machine just like there's no writing inside the engine of your car maybe a few part numbers yeah but it doesn't tell you like about our president's list or what stars we like the best or anything the uh, the engine in a car is a machine and and it doesn't function based on writing. And the Great Pyramid is a machine. It uh, <laughs> was built uh, to be uh, uh, to return a huge uh, return on investment that justified the extremely large cost to build the Great Pyramid. Yeah, yeah, precisely. And uh, you know, it, it it's interesting once you start breaking apart. Uh, what traditional Egyptology says about the Great Pyramid, because once again, um, I, I am a I am a huge fan of Egyptology, of the study of it, hieroglyphs, everything else. But um, there is definitely when it comes to the Great Pyramid, when it comes to the pyramids themselves, period, um, there seems to be a divergence. There seems to be some different kind of thinking about it Stephen, and it's strange and once again we're we're told by all egyptology that like in order for these pharaohs in order for anybody to to extend to the afterlife that you have to read these spells from the book of the dead so that your heart is weighed against that of a feather by set um and and then you continue incantations until you hop on the boat and carry yourself forward on the inner celestial Nile to to go forward uh, to the stars. Um, but none of that's there. Zero. If you look at that wall right there behind the tomb he's laying in, it is smooth granite. Maybe there are some yeah. burn marks that are also kind of weird. Um, but there's nothing. There's nothing. Yeah. No writing whatsoever. Very, very uh, strange. But Egyptology has essentially dropped the ball and has decided to uh, refrain from using the scientific method. Mm. They they offer a hypothesis, like they can say the precision stone cutting was done using copper chisels and pounders, but then they don't uh, substantiate their story by making a casing stone, for example. So it's odd. And Egyptology, believe it or not, is a science that is currently in crisis because it's founded on a lot of uh, very poor research methods, like declaring an edict and then expecting us to believe it. So Egyptology has stagnated as a science in terms of 
uh, pyramid construction techniques, and uh, I don't I don't know hardly anybody that believes in e- what Egyptologists say that are past the eighth grade anymore. So it's Egyptology is losing its uh, relevance in understanding uh, ancient Egypt, and I think that Egyptology is the biggest hindrance to understanding mm. the uh, ancient cultures in the Valley of the Nile. Yeah. Yeah, and you know it's it's interesting because it is it is slowly becoming that way with so many fields of study, Stephen. Um, where th- things are slowly coming about that are changing the paradigm so much. I mean, once again, the the dialogue for generations now um, since since literally the time before the discovery of Tutankhamun uh, was was the fact that. Uh, pyramids were built by slaves, that pyramids were built, you know, using huge ramps that they dragged and pushed stones up. And um, here we are right here in 2023, uh, seeing this evidence of exactly what you and pharaohspump.org, uh, you know, the the amazing book that you've researched to write your new book, everything else that, that, that you know, Kunkel your research, everything else, pretty well stands. I appreciate that. Yeah, uh, we're in a revolution of ideas, and uh, you know, it's the experts that are the last ones to change their minds. It was the experts that were the last ones that finally acknowledged the built-down yeah. skull was a forgery. You know, so the, the uh, brontosaurus wasn't real, man. Right. I, I right. have a shirt, one of my favorite T-shirts in the world. My brother gave it to me for Christmas like a decade ago. It has holes all in it. But it just has a brontosaurus, and it says, never forget. <laughs> yeah. Because, yeah, like, that. I don't know how many friends of mine that that was their favorite dinosaur growing up. Utter lie. That is a conglomeration of, like, two, three different skeletons that were found yeah. near each other. Right. Not, they, they had the not wrong an actual skull species. and different skeletons, not that an actual type of thing. Species. So... So yeah, so we're we're in a revolution of ideas, and uh, you know, very few people believe uh, phrenology anymore. That's a science about the bumps on people's heads and all of that. That was taught in universities. So, uh, but it has ceased to exist because it cannot withstand the rigors of the scientific method. And Egyptology mm. is the the phrenology of the 21st century. It cannot withstand the rigors of the scientific method. You know, their stories are not even compelling, but their stories are impossible to demonstrate in the real world. Mm. Uh, You know, the idea of Doriite pounders and the big ramp that's bigger than the pyramid itself. Yeah. And all of that is uh, farcical. And uh, Egyptology is becoming just a mystery religion that... uh, doesn't involve science or the process of using valid research methods. So it's going to have to either change or it will uh, go away. It'll end up in the ash heap of rejected ideas. And Egyptology will be a cautionary tale, just like uh, phrenology is a cautionary tale on how not to conduct research. Mm. Yeah, yeah, you know, and, and... uh, with that being said, let let's start getting into 
the evidence that points to a lock system being used. Let's let's start going through uh, that beautiful Occam, Occam razor mentality that you have as to how this was actively done, Stephen. Well, the original builders uh, already had stones on barges. Many of the quarries were across the river, and the largest stones were brought from farthest away, about 400 miles upstream. So uh, they've already had stones on barges, so they just built water locks from the catch basin in the Nile that was uh, near the construction site. And that series of water locks brought stones up effortlessly that were already on barges up to the building site. And the first stones that were set in place were the casing stones for the first level. And uh, they are cemented together watertight with a bonding agent that's stronger than the stone itself. So they had a square wall around mm. at the construction site. The original builders were able to supply water at the construction site, and they filled that square wall up, and it became a square pond. Well, they had water locks from the Nile that communicated all the way up into that square pond, and that allowed stones on barges to move into that pond, and they would move stones from the barge off 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 of the barge and set them into the pond. And when that pond was filled with stones, the first level of the Great Pyramid was completed. <clears throat> they built it level by level. So then the next stones they brought up on barges were the next layer of casing stones. And they set them in place, bonded them all together, watertight, added additional water, which brought the pond up to the next level. And they added an additional water lock to the flight of water locks they already had. So uh, they systematically brought stones up from the Nile River uh, effortlessly and uh, moved them up to the pond that was at the second level. And then they moved the stones off of the barges into the pond. And when they filled the pond up again, if you will, mm. with stones then the second level of the Great Pyramid was completed. So it was very systematic. They went up level by level, including casing stones. And there's a lot of evidence to indicate uh, that the Great Pyramid was built level by level and that the casing stones for each level was set in place first, hmm. and then the interior stones for that level. They built the passages and chambers level by level. You know, as they got to the King's Chamber, they put in the walls at the same level yeah. that the rest of the Great Pyramid was under construction, and then the ceiling stones. So it was very systematic, very fast, and uh, all of that. So it's interesting, the Erie Canal here in the United States that mm -hmm. I mentioned, it could move the weight of the Great Pyramid higher than the height of the Great Pyramid in a period of two years. So. Wow. Uh, you know, that's that's why they went to the effort to build the infrastructure of the Erie Canal is because it uh, provided a huge return on investment. Yeah. You know, uh, that's why I don't know exactly where you live, 
but every town has a sewer system. Yep. Why do they spend all that money on that? Yeah. Because it's a huge return on investment. You can have people, you know, congregated together and and you can reduce disease and everything else. It's infrastructure that provides prosperity for the people who who built it and paid for it. That's 100. why we have roads. Yeah. And the uh, power grids. All of this is infrastructure that creates prosperity. Huge return on investment. The Great Pyramid was the same way. It provided a huge return on investment for the people that built it. And it, it was justified. It made sense. It uh, helped people in a tangible way. And it was a prosperity machine built in ancient times. Well, and let's get into that part real quick, because that, that I think is one of the, I mean, not that the construction of the pyramid is not uh hotly hotly debated and what what evidence do we have i mean of course this would have this would have taken generations to build i mean much like the erie canal which was a good 15 year project or so mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. and that's with modern excavation machines things like that so i can imagine that it would have taken at least you know as even as they say pushing rocks uh they would have spent a couple hundred years building this thing um, and I imagine it would have been probably that even using water and boats, you know, it, it would have been at least a hundred or so years. But with that being said, and that much water for that long, are there any any water lines, any levels, any re remaining parts of the retaining wall, things like that, that would be proof of this hypothesis of construction, Stephen? There's a lot of evidence for water and related to the Great Pyramid. Mm. There was a enclosure wall around the Great Pyramid that existed up until the 18th century. The savants of Napoleon in 1803 uh, drew a lot of illustrations that included that retaining wall, and we think that was part of the construction process. Egyptologists say it was to keep the unwashed masses away from the big tomb. That was ineffectual, but hey, but we think it was part of the process. Mm. Uh, Sir Flanders Petrie found Nile earth inside the passages and chambers of the Great Pyramid, and we uh, understand that now as being called uh, sediment. So there was sediment. Herodotus, at least in several um, translations, described the Great Pyramid as being like and an island surrounded by water. I mean, was that like a metaphor or flowering language? But the retaining wall, we think, uh, retained water. So it was like a big island that had um, a retaining wall around it with, so it'd be like a, a lake just bigger than the island, if you will. So the casing stones being cemented together watertight is another uh, in indicator that uh, water was involved and also the salts of mm. the uh, inside the queen's chamber primarily there was a, a deposit of salts is is the term that they used yeah but it was a uh, deposit we think that was part of the uh, from the the sediment in the water the muddy water of the Nile mm. but also a part of the electrolysis process. We think electrolysis occurred yeah. inside the Great Pyramid, as do other 
uh, researchers who think the Great Pyramid was a machine. Yep. And that uh, caused salts to be deposited on the walls of both the Queen's Chamber and the lower end of the of the Grand Gallery. So all of that is uh, water-related evidence, and certainly there's other uh, indicators that water was a function or fundamentally important to the Great Pyramid. So my mm-hmm. books describe all of that in detail about uh, certainly water and the Great Pyramid. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, with that being said, let's uh, we've got you for about another 30 minutes or so. Let's start getting into the actual function of the pump and uh, how it was used to bring more water to to the area. We think the original builders uh, supplied water to the uh, Great Pyramid site. How that was done is under scholarly debate. I think it was uh, brought in from the ancient Lake Maurice, which still exists. It has an Arab name now, but it's much lower in elevation. And uh, But uh, we think that water was brought from that lake to the building site over where the Great Pyramid was. Water entered the Great Pyramid water pump at the upper end of the descending passage, which is about 50 feet above the uh, base of the Great Pyramid. And then it went down the descending passage all the way to the subterranean chamber, and that chamber is considered by many to be unfinished, but I think it was finished because it caused water, which enters one end of the chamber, to move in a whirlpool, and the other end has these mounds that are from the uh, rock. So people say, oh, well, it wasn't finished, mm. but it, it was. And what, what those mounds do is act like a water break and cause a whirlpool deep below the Great Pyramid. So we think that the uh, builders use the property of implosion uh, in the subterranean chamber that Victor Schroberger, an Austrian uh, naturalist and researcher, says, uh, you know, talked about implosion. So that implosion force was used to move water up through the uh, grotto and up into the lower end of the descending passage and in the, uh, excuse me, the lower end of the Grand Gallery. Mm. So uh, once it got, once it was in the lower end of the Grand Gallery, we think electrolysis occurred in that chamber, which uh, separated hydrogen and oxygen from the water. Yep. So that was a volatile fuel that was ignited at the proper time. And that uh, combustion or fire in the middle, which you often hear, mm. that combustion was used to create a vacuum above the uh, water in the Grand Gallery. Okay. So uh, that, that vacuum assisted moving water up higher, a huge, massive maybe 100-ton water piston would move yeah. up in the Grand Gallery. And then they had a series of valves and linkages that at the proper time they would open a valve in the upper end of the Grand Gallery, which would break the vacuum and cause that water to push down and go into the Queen's Chamber. 
and with valves and everything, water would go in through a check valve and then st- and then stop. That's uh, quite an illustration there, but it would stop and it would compress the air in the upper end of the queen's chamber mm. to a very high degree. And then with the shut valve, that air acting similar in a way to a hydraulic ram pump, the compressed air would push water up to the king's chamber and then ultimately out through the king's chamber vents. So we think that uh, the input was the, dis- the upper end of the descending passage, but the output was pretty high out of the both king's chamber vents. Interesting. Interesting. And once again, it, it does not take uh, a whole lot of voltage for um, electrolysis to take place. We know for a fact that, you know, the Egyptians and others used things like the Baghdad battery to. to yeah, it's elect- interesting that that technology is is from the same area, if you will. So, uh, yeah, Egyptologists say, well, it's just like a religious artifact for some, you know. But it actually is a battery. It's a, no, it's a it's a functional battery, and, yeah, and we know yeah. that the Egyptians <laughs> electroplated things, which means right. that which means that they had a, a functional use of low voltage. You know, yes. like like in the range of three volts. You know, like less than what it takes to charge your cell phone, uh, slightly more than a double A battery. Right. Um, Right. Is so, all it takes to do light electroplating, things like that, especially if you are using the proper chemicals. Um, right. And, you know, yeah. And, we, and the ancient uh, the ancient Egyptians or the builders of the Great Pyramid, there was nothing dumb about them. No, nothing. No. They, so, they had uh, a great know, knowledge were, of of the use of the their local chemistry. Um, local local minerals, things like that in in chemical properties of them uh they they had an incredible knowledge of such things even I mean, to the point that they could make a battery and even yeah, even have pretty, the concept of how to make so, a dry cell battery with with electrolyte and plates to carry charge and mm-hmm. like yeah, that, and, that's and then a they certain work. level so, of sophistication uh, yeah actually the research for that battery i just want to point that out mm. Uh, is not from Egyptology. No. So it was from outside of the realm of Egyptology. Yeah. So Egyptology didn't even help in that regard. Yeah, that was found much more in the in the right of um I, I wanna say it was found almost in the same way as the uh as the Dead Sea Scrolls. Where it where it was oh, just yeah. like found in a cave. Right. But but they found a bunch of those jars with uh some corroded yeah. like a iron rod and then a a copper tube but it was technologists that said well this might be something let's let's make one and see what happens and they poured grape juice in it and got a volt and a half out of it yeah so uh you know the that's called the scientific method and egyptology doesn't do that they don't do demonstrations (laughs) on on anything associated with they've tried i I think that's why they maybe don't do it anymore because i've I've definitely seen a couple of like nova exposés things like that that have come around in my lifetime where they have like okay this this team of workers and scientists are going to, in a scale amount of time, build a scale replica of the Great Pyramid um, using the known technology at the time. And they're, they're once again, as you said, never able to replicate it. Like, 
which which oh, yeah, is the point of dirt. science. That is the point yeah. of experimentation is the replication of of the results of the hypothesis. Yeah. Yeah. They're very deceptive. They'll move a, a ton and a half stone a few feet and then they'll say that's how they move the 70 ton payloads. You know, and it's, it's it's just very deceptive. It's like I can say, oh, I, I can lift a car. I can just grab a full-size car mm. and then just lift it over my head, just like that. I can, And then someone will say, prove it. Oh, yeah, I can, I can prove it. I'll demonstrate it by getting a Hot Wheels car and then lifting it over my head. Yeah, yeah. I but can stop a moving train. There's a scalability issue. But Egyptology, how they get away with it, I have no idea. But they won't forever, and they will uh, die on the vine and become irrelevant, and, uh, you know, we'll go on to uh, learn the truth. Now, and and with that being said, of course, I mean, uh, they're, they're listeners of my show. I myself hold, uh, once again, some interesting hypothesis when it comes to pyramids their uses things like that um even even the hypothesis of using it as a water pump um like yeah it it when you start looking at the design of the great pyramid of giza especially as a cutaway view um there is definitely a structure to it that is very much akin to uh, a hydraulic cylinder um, almost, almost like what's in your car, um, like a compression cylinder. It's it's pretty interesting. Yeah, her, um, Sir Flanders Petrie in one of his books said it was like walking inside of a machine, and uh, the the precision is phenomenal, and the uh, complexity is amazing. You know, much more mm. complex than it needed to be to bury of uh somebody's treasure if you will so uh, it uh, certainly i think had a function that wasn't symbolic the function wasn't religious or anything like that it wasn't to tell us anything but the but the great pyramid was uh um, complex uh based on function so that's uh that's our direction of research that we're following to uh, understand what was common knowledge in uh, when the Great Pyramid was built. You know, it's like all a mystery now, but it was just common knowledge and everybody understood it because they watched the Great Pyramid being built and they watched it being used for its original purpose. But it is, it is the honor and duty of modern day researchers to understand rediscover what was common knowledge back when the great pyramid was built yeah yeah and and i mean of course that's where a lot of a lot of the issue comes in i mean we have we have uh cuneiform tablets we have you know writings from ancient greece we have all kinds of documents about egypt all kinds of documents about uh Egyptian religious belief um, and and no doubt that because of things like the Rosetta Stone, we have a good grasp on what those hieroglyphs say. Um, however, we have no hieroglyphic writings about how or why the pyramids were built. Like there's there's none of that. Uh, so it is it is 
really and truly a, a, an entire mystery when it comes to Egyptology and why they were built. Um, there are hypotheses once again of, you know, they were built as machines to send the souls to the stars. Um, oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't get me wrong. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. Um, you know, or that may be a metaphor for something else. Um, what have you, you know, even, even the idea of pumping something from the underground and bringing it back to life in the real world, that in and of itself is a metaphor for the same thing, you know, and, and a metaphor for the actual functionality of, you know, uh, an underground chamber that is drawing water from under the ground and bringing it back up to bring life to the valley. Um, so it, like that in and of itself makes sense. But to to say that they were built by aliens, um, I, I don't know. Once again, I I am a big believer in the ingenuity of humanity. Uh, Archimedes loved playing with water. The control of water and water displacement was one of his obsessions in his work. Um, and And he drew most of his knowledge and most of his information from Egypt. Um, mm -hmm. and, and most of that knowledge yeah. was sadly lost in, in the great fires of, of the library of Alexandria, you know? Right. So, yeah. 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 I don't, I don't bring in the idea or of aliens with what I'm doing. I think all civilizations have uh, geniuses, that uh, can do things that uh, the regular people can't fully understand, like a alternating current. Believe it or not, it's mm. rather complicated. Yes. And uh, but uh, Nikola Tesla figured it out in one day, and it had a huge, you know, return on investment. You know, huge advantages. So <clears throat> probably in ancient times there was somebody that could uh, make some very strong bonding agents. Someone else that was excellent at logistics. Yeah. They had a wise leader that funded this project and and they they built it, but not aliens. If you um if you bring in the idea of aliens, uh you are saying ancient people uh weren't smart enough to stack rocks on top of each other. And uh, you know, you, you mentioned yeah. that. It's the flip side of that coin with the uh with aliens. No, oh, no, 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 no. They could do it, but they just didn't. It, but aliens had to do it. So you can't have it both ways. Yeah. So uh, it's also, I don't know if I could bring this up, Feel but free. it's also kind of, kind of racist to say that the people in the Valley of the Nile couldn't have done it and you needed aliens. Because think about it's, it. Uh, it's diminutive. There's about it 50, is 57 races. And on Earth, there's about six, and you add all them up together, what's the one race that couldn't build the Great Pyramid? Yeah. Yeah. You know, well, well the, the, none of them could. That none <laughs> but, of them could. That, right. the, you know, the, the, the Mayans well, the, the couldn't construct it could, without help. But there's one race, yeah. yeah. But yeah. Well, I'd take a different tone. I'd say, oh, sure. well, the people in the Valley of the Nile were geniuses, and they were able to manipulate the environment they lived in for their own advantages. Oh, that's that's that, much that, more satisfying to me than saying, 
it was aliens. Well, and that's just it, though. Uh, we we do not have the conne- we don't have the connection to the world around us that our great grandparents had, Stephen. Now, granted, you've you've got about three or four years on me, um, <laughs> but but you know, like my grandfather was a grew up as a sharecropper. You know, like he grew up not he didn't need a farmer's almanac to know when to put beets in the ground. He knew right. when to put beets in the ground because his great grandfather told him, hey, just so you know, this is about the time of year you need to put your beets in the ground if you want them to grow right. Those right. were things that we were just connected to in a different way that we no longer have the need for. You know, and, and that's how quick technology leaves. That's how quick literal like. Imagine if the trucks stop moving. Imagine if the railways stop moving mm-hmm. tomorrow, America. Where would you get your produce? Yeah. Where would yeah, you get it? True. How would you get your vitamins? Yeah. How would you get all of yeah, this? Pe- people would be overwhelmed, you know, and uh, you wouldn't go down it, to the it, store if they ran out of electricity. It'd be gone. It'd be gone. Look at the first week of COVID. Yeah. First week of COVID, even before lockdowns, it was bare. It was gone. I remember that. And if if you didn't have a garden in your backyard, if you didn't know how to like how to till the soil in a city, because the soil in a city is different than the soil like in a neighborhood's different than the soil out in the country. It's right on. And you got to know how to do that. And those were things that like nobody had to. My grandfather didn't have to go ask somebody at Lowe's how to take care of his soil and make (laughs) it rich and bountiful. He was taught yeah. that. Um, yeah, we, we don't have, have we that. We have, uh, you know, we uh, take for granted all the high technology that Absolutely. we have. And Absolutely. I think that we have technology, you know, probably with uh, integrated circuits and all of that, yep. that the ancient Egyptians or whoever built the Great Pyramid, they, they didn't have that. But I think they had technology or wisdom or understanding of physics that we don't have 110 percent right uh, they use that to develop uh, this uh, water pumping technology well, and probably so much more that we don't even uh, know about and a freestanding building that is freestanding still i challenge you to go out and find a freestanding building made by modern day spec that is older than a hundred years old that has not been maintained yeah we have yeah, wire true. infrastructure yeah. inside of those, steel infrastructure, everything else. Uh, even right now, I've got up on screen the article from Science Alert about how we finally know how ancient yeah. rock, Roman concrete was so durable. You look at things yeah. like the Pantheon, that was, that was, or the Parthenon rather, uh, that was quite literally built with molds. There's no rebar holding that up. Right. Yeah. That that was yeah, built with a that's huge. That's an amazing example of some ancient high technology. Not, not just that, aqueducts. Yes, un unaided. You were mentioning sewers earlier. Just to bring it back to that, a sewer line unaided will will be destroyed within twenty years, and that mm-hmm. is reinforced mm-hmm. with rebar, all kinds of things. The Roman aqueducts are still pumping water, man. Yeah, no yeah. rebar. Great. Great infrastructure. No yeah, rebar. For, for darn sure. And and we just now figured that out. 
There, there was a great show on Discovery Channel years ago, back when Discovery and history used to, you know, show shows um, like that. Uh, there was one called uh, Without Man, I believe it was. Uh, mm -hmm. It went on for like a year, like a season or two. But it basically showed like, okay, here's a modern city. Now let's progress it without humans for the next hundred years. And like within 20 years, the place is like a jungle again, like plants are growing out of the side of the building and, you know, yeah, buildings I, are dilapidated and falling down. And like without our intervention, our construction <laughs> methods now won't even last a generation. You you would come in yeah. two generations from now and it would look like a barren wasteland. Yeah, it's it's a whole different world. Yeah, the Great Pyramid was built uh, and then the next uh, solid structure that was built taller than the Great Pyramid was the Eiffel Tower. Yeah. So the Great Pyramid was the tallest building for at least 45 centuries. It's, yeah. uh, you know, they're an impressive group of people that built uh, the uh, Great Pyramid. Yeah, that's another interesting uh, article. Yeah. About uh, the relationship between water and the construction of the Great Pyramid. 100%. Funny, uh, Egyptology has put up a wall of silence and don't even acknowledge that I exist or that I've written a book or numerous anything books, like that. They won't even video say uh, that I'm wrong. You know, it's just absolute, you know, circle of wagons silence. Yeah. Uh, as uh, <laughs> well, it, as their weapon against me. So it's uh, it's been a fun, fun and interesting experience in a lot of ways studying uh, the Great Pyramid and how and why it was built. Well, I always love our conversations, man. They are lively. They are full. You are a wealth of knowledge on this stuff, man. Like when it, when it comes to once again, the, the, the common sense view of construction of the Great Pyramid, like I have uh, since finding your work years ago and, and reading your work and watching your work and having these conversations with you, I have come closer and closer and closer to this just makes utter sense. Like, why Why would you stop the Nile that you had already mastered and using? Why Why would you just, ah, okay, that's enough. Let's drag it across the dirt now, guys, for the next mile and a half. <laughs> right, like, yeah. it, it makes zero sense when you already know how to flood the Nile Delta, when you already know how to use locks, when you already know how to dam things up. You know, um, that's just a, that's a loss of logic. To me, it's like the logic machine just ceased right where the Nile Delta did. Um, <laughs> well, I appreciate I appreciate those kind words. Well, 100 percent. Before we let you go, uh, let everybody know where they can go to get their new copy of the book uh, Pharaoh's Pump Analyzed, where they can go to follow all of the work of the Pharaoh's Pump Foundation and where they can go to contribute and help you out where they you know, if, if you have any. Uh, links for contributions, things like that, where they can contribute to the research and help get word out there and help finance things. Well, the best thing they can do to find out about uh, me is to go to my website at thepump.org. So they can uh, check that out and uh, <laughs> and find out uh, what I'm doing, what my schedule is. You can find out what our nonprofit organization is up to uh, you can it'll answer a lot of your questions and uh, about the research 
So you can email me through that website and also click on our Facebook page. That's about the only social media that I that I do. Everything yeah. you know, it's so time consuming. You can't do it all. So, but I do have my third book out called Pharaoh's Pump Analyzed. It's in ebook format, a Kindle ebook on uh, Amazon, as well as my other two books are both in soft cover and ebook format. So those uh, pictures there is all three of my books. One is about how the Great Pyramid was built, and the other is about why, and then the th it was built, and then the third is analyzing where the genesis of this direction of research uh, came from, Edward Kunkel's book, and to analyze his book and what he said and describe how this direction of research has progressed since he wrote his book and uh, and all, all of that. So I hope uh, people, you know, that's that's what a, the revolution is going to look like. People reading books, not oh, just, what you know, uh, believing pages. what somebody What's tells that them. about? <laughs> well, you know, and that is exactly what we discuss on this show all the time is we we are given beautiful, amazing organs called brains uh, <laughs> to to flex and use and reuse and. To rehash the same information, if if you're not learning something about what you're passionate about daily, um, or relearning something, or even challenging your learning of it, uh, mm -hmm. you're probably not growing as a human being. It's it's just that simple. Uh, so yes, challenge your learning, challenge your beliefs, be willing to have those hard conversations, folks, be willing to have people disagree with your beliefs and open heartedly and open mindedly listen to their disagreement. Take it into your datum set. Uh, it's, it's important. This is how conversations and discoveries happen. So, uh, thank you as always for your time, Stephen. I greatly appreciate it. Uh, I am a huge fan of everything that you do over at, pharaohspump.org. So thank you for your time, as always. Thank you very much. I appreciate it, Chris. Absolutely. While you are online checking out all of the amazing work of Stephen Myers, everybody, uh, make sure to stop on by and follow him on YouTube. You can find his content there. Uh, just look up at Great Pyramid Pump on YouTube, and you can follow his channel as we do. Uh, make sure to stop on by Curious Realm, CuriousRealm.com forward slash videos is where you can easily find the work of Stephen Myers. You can watch all of his videos there, like, follow, subscribe. You can also find all of our episodes as well as our store at CuriousRealm.com. Uh, make sure to like, follow, subscribe, share, comment, all that kind of good stuff, folks. Uh, thank you as always. For your open minds, your open hearts, that is what makes conversation. And without conversation, we do not move forward as humanity, everybody. Uh, that is our charge as humanity, is to have the conversation, to have open hearts, have open minds. So take care of yourselves, take care of each other. And remember, stay curious. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning into this episode of The Curious Realm. Stay tuned for more guests, forbidden topics, and hidden truths. Download the official Curious Realm app and view the Knowledge Vault on our website, CuriousRealm.com. Follow us on social media by searching Curious Realm. Curious Realm is available on your favorite podcast services. 
as well as YouTube, Roku, Amazon Fire, and Apple TV through the APR TV app, available on all app markets. Thanks for listening. Stay curious. And remember, the other side is always watching.